0: There wasn't an incident that triggered me to go, but there was a feeling, and the feeling was shame. I looked in the mirror and I felt ashamed because I knew that I was staying in the Labour Party for the wrong reasons. The whole thing made me feel a lot more Jewish, let me put it that way. I, I had never, as a Jewish Brit, been made to feel by others that my Jewishness was something that was important to them. And now that I did feel that way, I felt a sort of anger and pride in my identity that made me want to assert it for myself.
1: Welcome to Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask leaders what they've changed their mind on and why. I'm Laura Osborne, Communications Director and Depolarisation Project Associate. You've just heard from our guest today, Jamie Suskind, who changed his mind on the Labour Party, but might be on the cusp of changing it back, and who would actually have chosen dogs as his subject, if we'd let him know that was possible up front. But before we get to that, I'd like to invite you to sign up for our email newsletter at depolarisationproject.com. We promote this show with Open Democracy to their 8 million regular monthly visitors. You can find the back catalogue to our shows and more information on this episode at opendemocracy.net forward slash depolarisation project. I'm joined for today's episode by my co-hosts, CEO of the Depolarisation Project, Ali Goldsworthy. Hello, Ali. Hi, Laura. And our behavioural insight expert, Alex Chesterfield. Hi, Alex. Hi, Laura. Hi, Ali. So... We read Jamie's book, Future Politics, before the interview, and it fills an important gap by both attempting to bring political philosophy up to date and also by linking it to tech and the decisions that lay ahead of us all. Ali, what struck you most about our conversation?
2: Well, what really had an effect on me was about Jamie's membership of the Labour Party and how that sat right at the core of his identity, how he really struggled to reconcile the anti-Semitism he found in Labour and when he had to choose which became more important to him, his Jewishness or his politics. I also did think, like you, that he was really honest about his initial dislike of dogs, not a popular
3: stance with me, at least.
1: <laughs> and what about you, Alex? What did you think our listeners
3: should look out for? I was amused by the dogs. I'm not, I'm not a massive dog <laughs> person, but he did win me over on the dogs. So on a more serious note, I think he gave some really interesting points of view on perception and how this can be altered and how filter bubbles do and don't operate online and it isn't as straightforward as as people used to think so he made the point about our inability to consume all the information that we're presented with and how this may be exploited far more in the future than we can ever conceive of now so it's just really refreshing I think to hear someone challenging and making a very evidence-based challenge of the, the assumption that's often made that actually all online, or the internet is, is bad.
1: Jamie, welcome to Change My Mind.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: You are very welcome. So we're going to kick off by talking a little bit about your book, Future Politics, which sits very much at the nexus of tech, politics and law, and questions our readiness for the world we're creating. So what made you write it?
0: I think the idea first came to me when I was still an undergraduate. So I did a degree in politics. And one of the things that struck me as strange even then was that uh, I could do such a degree without even referring to or mentioning, let alone studying, developing technologies and emerging technologies, things like the internet. And this was at the time when social media was coming to the fore as well. All the textbooks were silent on what seemed to me to be one of the big political issues of our time. And so so I just had this concern, really, that a lot of our old ideas and our old thinking might be inadequate to the age that we're moving into.
2: The reviews have been pretty stonking. Quite a lot of people saying it's a must read for policymakers. I guess I wanted to think about from a political point of view, how easy do you think it is for politicians to move with the times and with very dynamic environments, which is one of the challenges of tech?
0: Not that easy at all, to be honest. I mean, it's partly a generational thing. A lot of our politicians came of age in a time where this just wasn't the top item on the menu. That said, a lot of the most foremost politicians in our country, at least in Britain, who are thinking about this issue are not necessarily younger politicians. Many of them are more senior. But there's an additional problem, which is that although those of us who kind of live and breathe this stuff really do believe that we are embarking on a transformation that could be as big for humanity as the agricultural revolution or the invention of writing, tech issues still come fairly low down the list of people's priorities along with other things of minor importance like climate change, which are difficult to quantify in terms of getting votes out of them. And they're difficult to politicize on a kind of election cycle basis if what you're really thinking about is the next life cycle. For all those reasons, you know, there are plenty of politicians who are kind of interested in paying lip service to this sort of stuff. But real deep understanding and study of it uh, is fairly rare. And there are certainly no politicians around who went into politics to deal with these kinds of issues.
3: Mm. Who is thinking about this at the moment, Jamie? You mentioned a moment ago there were some political leaders. Who would you say is up there in terms of thinking about it or starting to tackle this?
0: The main hubs in the world of people who are thinking sensibly about the regulation of technology are the European Union, the European Commission. And perhaps being uncharitable, I think one of the reasons the Commission is is a good place for... to think about technology is because it is kind of unaccountable and remote and that's not a popular thing to say but the truth is they do take a longer term view of many policy issues and are able to sit back now i don't agree with a lot of the policy ideas that are coming out of russell's these days i think the gdpr creates as many difficulties as it solves but that is definitely somewhere where people are, are very forward thinking about tech uh, even if we can disagree with what they're up to people like governor newsom in california are obviously out ahead of the pack in the States. Dan Feinstein as well, the Senator from California, someone who's thinking carefully about these things. There are some very smart people in the French government. I don't know how influential they are, but they are thinking about it as well. And here in Parliament, you know, there are, I wouldn't necessarily say that we have anyone in the cabinet for whom this is the biggest political issue that they care about, but there are definitely MPs and Lords in Parliament who are taking this stuff seriously. But frankly, I think a lot of the most interesting stuff is not coming from elected officials just now. It's coming out of academia. It's coming out of the private sector. It's coming from places where it really shouldn't have to come, actually, because we're entitled to to a little bit of leadership, I think, on this from our leaders.
3: Mm, Seems like a missed opportunity.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those issues where things just creep up. We' We're not used to as humans are thinking in exponential terms, but a lot of technology is improving at an accelerating rate, whereas kind of time and history just proceed in a line with so much other stuff on our plate, I fear it's going to be years before we settle down properly to think about many of these issues, but by then it may be too late.
1: And a lot of those big questions that you ask in the book, JB, they're very philosophical in nature, aren't they? You know, they are big questions about defining the kind of future that we want and how tech can then provide it. How how do you think leaders can find the space to get their heads around that type of big societal philosophical decision
0: making? Well, I mean, look, not every politician is going to be a philosopher. But the reason I, I wrote this book is because I think there are loads of books out there where... The first 11 chapters are kind of telling stories about tech, often horror stories. And then there's a sort of final chapter where, you know, called something like Solutions, where...
3: (laughs) Oh, Jamie, you're so right.
0: (laughs) Where, you know, a few cursory ideas are given, many of which were already in place in different countries in the world. One of the reasons I think those books are not necessarily getting at the heart of the issue, you can't decide what kind of regulatory intervention you want from the state until you've decided what it is exactly that you want out of technologies what what exactly is so offensive about them when they go wrong and what can be changed about them to make them go right and that means you need to not just come up with off the shelf policy answers but you need a coherent framework of what the good life is about and i recognize that you know to tr- translating the the poetry of political philosophy into the prose of regulation is is a very difficult thing to do, but you can't do without philosophy. you can't just avoid the big issues and patch up you know your society like an old jacket that's falling apart. You need a design, you need to think about it so th- that was why I was attracted to a philosophical approach. I wouldn't want listeners to think though that this is a sort of airy fairy book about the highfalutin ideas. I take the very simple ideas that we used to think and speak about politics, freedom, democracy, justice, power. And I try to understand, you know, where does tech fit into these? Um, and certainly, at least in my own mind, by the time I'd finished the book, it, things seemed a little clearer to me.
1: Absolutely. And I think, Jamie, you've done a very good job of that. You I was quite struck by how accessible it was, actually. And as you say, that you talk all the way through about the decisions that are possible to make, but you also talk about some very kind of big practical questions, you know, if if the world of work is going to change and change, you know, beyond our, you know, ability to imagine it, you know, are some of those things just too hard for us to comprehend,
0: do you think?
1: Is that why we struggle so much and why leaders struggle so much to get their heads around them?
0: I, I don't think they are. I just think we don't focus on them. We focus on other stuff. I mean, understandably, a lot of people, you know, when they think about politics, which they maybe don't do that often. What they think about is the Potholes in the road, the rubbish discipline at their local school, the litter in the park, the crime on the street corner. You know, there's a lot of immediate political concerns that people understandably pay attention to ahead of quite difficult and challenging questions about what we might do when work runs out in 30 or 40 years. That said, you know, there's a division of labor in society. Not everyone needs to think about all of these issues all the time. But if no one's thinking about them any of the time, at least in the places where laws are made, that's a problem. And there needs to be some debate about what best to do. So
3: I actually just want to bring, try and bring the conversation around a little bit to polarisation. So you talk about, in the book, Jamie, about an increase in how others will filter our perceptions and the relationship between tech and the exertion of power. So I was really curious to what extent you think That will exacerbate the polarization we already see in in many political systems around the world.
0: It's a great question, and it's one I spend a lot of time worrying about. When people say that technology has a kind of power or gives a kind of power, I think what they're really saying is three things. They're saying, first of all, that technologies that we use and interact with contain rules that we have to abide by when we interact with those technologies. So the self-driving car that won't drive over the speed limit, for instance, or it won't park in, a, it won't, it won't park in a, a spot that's not a parking space. The technology itself won't allow you to do things, just like you can't post a tweet if it's more than 280 characters. The second way that technology is a kind of power is what I call scrutiny. It gathers, technologies gather data about us. And that's useful for those who do the gathering for two reasons. First of all, because it tells them information about us, which they can then use to sell us things or try and adjust our behavior in certain ways. And also though, because when we know the data is being gathered about us, we change our behavior. Just being watched is a form of discipline in itself. And the third form of power, which I think is most relevant to the question you've just asked is what I call perception control. This is the idea that all of us have a very finite ability to perceive the entirety of the world around us. And we require others to present us with digestible chunks of information, news and the like, about what's happening about that out there. But of course, the, the amount of information that we're presented with on our news feeds and on our social media platforms is, is only ever going to be very small compared to the entirety of what's out there. And those who choose it, those who curate it, uh, and increasingly they are technology companies, they decide what we know and what we don't know, what we see and what we don't see, what we care about, what's important and what doesn't matter at all. And When you put all this together and you look at how platforms actually operate, there has been a big problem in the last 10 years with the way that they've been engineered, which is that essentially a lot of platforms, be they search engines or social media platforms, they use the data that is gathered about individuals, which gives a sense of their prejudices and their privileges and their desires and their insecurities. It uses that data. To present them with information that they are most likely to find agreeable or attractive, or useful. Uh, But what that means is that the news that you see on your newsfeed may well be different from the one the news that I see, depending on our pre-existing preferences. And so there is a risk if that is how systems are engineered that we are increasingly filtered and siloed into lots and lots of different little bubbles. I think is the word that is usually used now. The reason I say that that's not inevitable is because that is just how the systems are engineered just now. I would hope that it would be possible to design systems, and I think about this a lot, which don't make us more divided, but in fact make us more united. That instead of presenting the stuff that's most addictive and most compulsive, present us with stuff that is useful, at least sometimes. So. The, the, the answer, I think, is a bit of a politician's answer, because I think technology can be used to polarise, even if that's not its direct purpose, but it can also be used to bring us together.
2: So, Jamie, I wanted to just follow up on, on that, because, I mean, I share some of your views, less so about filter bubbles and their their influence. But I do think you might be familiar with some work here at Stanford that's been done that shows that those who are most polarised are those who are not online. And it always gives me thought pause for thought that study because I do wonder if it's like the likes of Facebook are a convenient baddie, and also I mean partly that's their business model to drive engagement, and it's much much more than that that does things. So you, even your and and we'll be talking quite a lot about this in our book, but the the role of activist platforms and campaigning platforms in driving polarization as well is very significant, and I just wondered kind of how that fitted into the argument that you've just made that if it's broader and also if those who are are offline are the most polarised how much of an issue is likes of Facebook?
0: Well it's really important that you bring up that literature because it's absolutely true that in the last few years there has been an academic swing back towards or away from I think that the comfortable consensus of a few years ago in the work of you know, guys like Parisa and Cass Sunstein, that we are all just being separated into filter bubbles. There has been some work which suggests that actually that effect might be overstated. Mm. Uh, in particular, I've seen research which says that it may well be that when you use Twitter, for instance, you are put into a filter bubble. But if you also use Facebook and you also use Reddit and you also use Pinterest, then overall, what you have is that's quite exactly a diverse, yeah. exactly. And so and so, it would it would make sense then that the people who <laughs> who were offline and didn't have access to any of that stuff might well be significantly more entrenched in their views than others. That said, there is also significant research, particularly at the extremes, by guys like, by folks like Yachai Benkler and the Berkman Klein Center, which shows that if you incline already towards slightly extreme political views or you have fixed and firm political views, it can be very easy to become more entrenched and more radical in those views, depending on how you spend your time. The kind of view that I reach is I think that these systems can exacerbate our worst tendencies. It may well be that if those people who were offline and were highly polarized, then just one day discovered Reddit, they may even become even more extreme than they already are. A really important point that I'm trying to think about in my next book is that, when you think about regulating technologies, you can't just think about regulating individual platforms because we interact with technologies at a kind of holistic level. So we go through our lives and every day we might interact with 50 technologies. And what we're interested in, in terms of the future of humanity, is the combined and cumulative effect of those. So that's why I think a lot of the regulatory discussions that I see you know, are like, what should we do about Google? What should we do about Facebook? But I think you have to try and look at a, the broader canvas and say, actually, the questions are bigger. What should be able to be done with people's data and what shouldn't be? How should algorithms in whatever manifestation they come, if they are going to affect us in significant areas of their lives, how should they be supervised? These are questions at a higher level of generality than I think the first generation of scholarship on this stuff has been looking at.
2: I think we totally agree that And also systems thinking is hard, right? It's really taxing and exhausting doing it that way, which is why people And And hard to get Yeah, we're slightly jumping around here, but I was going to take you um, back to your day job, actually, and away from your book, though I'd love to hear more about the the second one um, Mm. towards the end so you're you're a lawyer by trade and for our american listeners you're you're a barrister is that correct
0: yeah i mean i can i can give an explanation of the ludicrous (laughs) division that we have here but
2: no uh, i was i was going to go for the lazy one which i tend to do when i'm out in the states which is you're one of the people who wears a wig and appears in court
0: yeah indeed and i appear in court those uh, are in that in that order that is the significance of my (laughs) job i mean many many years in law school finally to wear the wig to look like a a a fool doing it but uh We we speak in court. That's what we do. So we we tend to be more specialized in particular areas of litigation. And we give advice and we stand up and argue and cross examine and debate in court.
2: True story. I have a friend who's a very senior political scientist or probably will be the best of his generation. And, you know, he wasn't excited about anything that I did, but he was or contacts or anything like that. But the fact that one of my friends was a a senior barrister who wears a wig (laughs) is possibly the most excited I've ever seen him. But but I did want to ask you about the legal trade and if you think that that is polarizing particularly around around barristers or senior judges and if you do think it's being polarized by the current environment where might that end up and what could potentially be done in your view to try and unwind it
0: I think I can give quite an easy answer to this in the UK which is that we have nowhere near the closeness to politics and political issues here in the legal profession than they do in the states and You know, As barristers, for instance, there's a very strict rule that we are not allowed to turn down clients on the basis that we disagree with their political views, which means that over the course of your career as a barrister, you will end up all the time representing people who you maybe don't like or don't agree with. And your duty is to give them the same fearless advocacy that you would give anyone else. So actually, I find even though we have a highly adversarial justice system within each case, the two sides will be Battling it out vigorously, looked at as a whole, there isn't a, a particularly clear political bent to the legal profession. There's been some developments in the last year which have concerned a lot of us in the law, which is that actually the government—and uh, I'm sure news of this reached the states—but uh, the government did a couple of things which ended up being taken to the Supreme Court and said, and where the Supreme Court took the extraordinary step in our in our political system of saying that the basically the prime minister had acted unlawfully. And uh, I know in the States, they're very used to having a Supreme Court that will strike down pieces of legislation. That's, a, that's not even possible in the UK. Our Supreme Court can't overturn a, a, an act of parliament. But in the last few years, there has been a little bit of a politicization of the Brexit issue. But a cynic would say that that's because the government has deliberately done unlawful things or done things which it knew were going to be challenged in the courts. So as to, to pit itself against a perceived elite of out of touch, Europhile judges. That's a wee bit in the rearview mirror now, and I hope it stays there because I know a lot of us were really uncomfortable about how. Judges were sort of becoming political figures in a way that was quite familiar in the states, but really is alien to the English tradition.
3: I think it's drum roll time now. I think this is our key. This is our key main question, Jamie, <laughs> because it's the heart, heart of the um, interview. So we ask all our guests about a time they changed their mind on a substantive policy issue or, or anything else that's significant in their personal lives. So what have you changed your mind on and why?
0: Oh, it's funny. I didn't realize I was able to do it about something in my personal life because I was going to originally talk about my view on dogs because I have (laughs) recently... We uh, can do two. We can do two. Let's
1: keep time for that at the end.
0: (laughs) Okay, absolutely. So, um, I mean, it's not immediately in in the spirit of depolarization and reconciliation, but I had a big rupture in my life uh, in 2018, when I left the UK Labour Party after 10 years, and not just 10 years of membership, but 10 years of pretty active activism, uh, you know, my university club in my local parties, uh, assisting national politicians. And when I was, you know, young and idealistic, and I really saw a future for myself in the Labour Party, I left in 2018. After uh, you know, a period of real soul searching. Not because I didn't consider myself to have labor values anymore, but because I felt that the party had become, I-, I used the phrase carefully, but I thought it had become institutionally hostile to Jewish people. And this is a view, I think, that the vast majority of British Jews now hold it. I think a lot of people outside the Jewish community hold it as well. And there is a pending report from a statutory body here in the UK, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, into whether Labour was institutionally anti-Semitic. We can talk about all of that, obviously, because I think the party is now moving in a much better direction. I also want to explain what I mean by institutionally anti-Semitic, because it's important to emphasise that that doesn't mean that everyone within the party is anti-Semitic. And In fact, that's what's interesting about it, that an institution can become hostile, even if it's only a minority of people within it who are themselves the bad eggs. But that was a big rupture for me because the Labour Party had been a sort of political and ideological and social home for me for so long. The first and only party I'd ever been a member of and leaving it felt like a, a big tear between two parts of my identity.
1: Tell us a little bit more about that, Jamie, in terms of how you think that happens to an institution. What steps did you observe in that transition from, as you said, a few bag of eggs to an institutional anti-Semitic problem?
0: So it's something that I've I come across a lot in my own work as a barrister, actually, because I principally work as a discrimination lawyer. So I quite often end up working cases which involve a company which has gone wrong. There is actually a a proper definition of what institutionally racist or institutionally anti-Semitic means. But when I use the phrase, what I mean is that it's a place where if you're that way inclined, you can do racist things without fear of being held accountable uh, and indeed without prejudice to your advancement within the party. So what it doesn't require is for everyone in a party to be racist or anti-Semitic. But what it does require is for people in positions of authority to turn a blind eye and to give what is perceived to be as tacit encouragement and tacit approval. So the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is complicated because it is not what people traditionally imagine anti-Semitism looks like. It's not jackboots and racial inferiority. Most people in the Labour Party would describe themselves as massively anti-racist and you know actively opposed to that kind of politics. But anti-Semitism in the Labour Party arises out of a different set of prejudices held by a very, very small minority. Well, not a very, very small minority, held by a minority within the Labour Party, which comes from an extreme hostility, extreme hostility to America and American foreign policy, to Israel and Israeli foreign policy and domestic policy, to the influence perceived uh, Real or otherwise, of the media to the influence of the banks. And if you are at all of a conspiratorial mindset, there is a long and uh, storied history of those links being drawn together between the great imperial powers, the banks, the media, and at the center of it is a stereotype of a Jewish person with a big nose who is pulling all the strings. And as I say, it's often not quite as vulgar as that. Although you know there were there was an instance, for instance, where uh, the leader of the Labour Party vocally defended a mural on a wall, which everyone accepted was anti-Semitic because it depicted Jewish bankers enslaving the other people of the world. So I mean, it, it, at points it was obvious. It was also said that he laid a wreath at the grave of the Munich terrorists who had abducted the entire Israeli Olympic team, murdered them and castrated them all. And so to lay a, grief, a wreath at the grave of the, of, the, of the group that did that is was perceived by the Jewish community in Britain to be yeah, not a terribly sympathetic act. So the way it manifests itself is not through kind of rallies and not through propaganda, but through Turning up to your local meeting and finding that, again, the motion there is nothing to do with the problems in the local area, but it's to do with Israel. It's about Jewish MPs being told they have dual loyalty, that they are the MP for Tel Aviv, not the MP for Leeds or for Liverpool or wherever it was. It's about conference motions and conference speeches, which identify shadowy elites in terms that people who've studied that history would know were referring to Jews. Uh, it's about symbolic acts of the leader, like the one I just described. It's about massive, massive amounts of internet trolling. And this was really where I received, you know, where, where it was most real for me. Is just, you know, this was around about the time my first book was coming out. I'd post something and someone would just reply saying, well, what do you think about the Palestinians? And I'd say, well, I don't know what you mean. I, I, I'm British. I, li- I live in Britain. And it's that obsession with you as a Jew that you cannot be anything other than a Jew, and that your politics and your worldview must be defined by it. And as I say, it's a very small, very, very small minority, tiny minority, but vocal and active within the Labour Party. And the leadership just didn't do anything about it. So complaints would go unmet, denials. And about around the time that I left the Labour Party, you know, the Labour Party now acknowledges there was a problem. But it's easy to forget that for years, Jewish people were gaslit. They were told, and this is again itself an anti-Semitic trope, that what they really were were closet Tories who were trying to undermine the Labour Party with their complaints. Whereas often these were people like myself who had served the Labour Party in good faith for many years and would would never dream of voting for the Conservatives. And so one thing led to another. And then the question for me was, well, do I stay and try and affect change from within? Or at what point does membership of an institution become complicity and this is obviously a question that you are hearing a lot about these days in the context of the black lives matter movement is it enough to be a passive conscientious objector in the face of injustice or or do you have to take active steps to try to remedy it that was a long answer
2: <laughs> no but it was it was a very thoughtful answer which is why why i didn't interrupt you i just wondered if there was a straw that that broke the camel's back? What was it that actually triggered you to go?
0: There wasn't an incident that triggered me to go, but there was a feeling. um, And the feeling was shame. I I think I just, I looked in the mirror and I felt ashamed because I knew that I was staying in the Labour Party for the wrong reasons. I was staying there out of loyalty. Uh, I was staying there out of friendship. I, I was staying there partly out of a slightly deluded hope that things weren't as bad as they appeared. I was staying there out of convenience because we all know what it's like to become accustomed to an institution and feel at home there.
2: The way you're talking, it sounds like it was a really meaningful part of your identity.
3: I was just going to say that. It sounds like it was part of your your sense of self.
0: I think what I realized at the time though, was that I had this other part of my identity, my Jewish identity, Mm. which The whole thing made me feel a lot more Jewish, let me put it that way. I I had never, as a Jewish Brit, been made to feel by others that my Jewishness was something that was important to them. And now that I did feel that way, I felt a sort of anger and pride in my identity that made me want to assert it Mm. for myself. And I realized that for many of the reasons I joined the Labour Party, and this is what I said in my resignation letter, were to do with my Judaism, implicit or not, the belief in family, the belief in education, the urgent demand for social justice, the understanding of what it's like to be the descendant of refugees, to be the descendant of the victims of genocide, and to have that burning sense of fury that that kind of thing can happen in the world. Mm -hmm. It made me realize that, you know, A lot of that was what drove me into politics and made me interested in it. But I couldn't look at my parents in the eye. For the people who didn't have that kind of loyalty to the Labour Party, basically normal people who check into politics two or three times uh, uh, a month (laughs) or or less, they couldn't understand what I was doing because they could see with much greater clarity than I where the wind was blowing. And one day I saw it as well.
2: I'm really struck by, as you've talked about this, you've repeatedly said that it was a... small group of people and only a minor section of the Labour Party and I just wondered about that that framing in your head because you know it was the leader or he did allow it to go on (laughs) and he was elected and then re-elected or this is Jeremy Corbyn was re-elected despite it becoming you know the Jewish community was very vocal in its concerns about this and completely rightly so and how widespread do you think it really was and how much is it easier for you to think that it was a fairly small group of people rather than that the institution permissively allowed it and people didn't care? And that's what or not enough people cared, and that's why why Corbyn was re-elected.
0: I, I think that's a good challenge. And if I were to point fingers, I'd point them in a few different directions. I'd say this I think a very, very small number of people in the Labour Party are actual conscious anti Semites then I think there is a larger donut around them of people who subconsciously hold anti-Semitic views. But even that donut, I think, is a very, very minority group. I genuinely do believe that. There is then a slightly larger group who recognizes that there might have been a problem with anti-Semitism, but saw it as less of a problem than other forms of racism, and therefore were keen not to pay attention to it. So they would basically say, actually, Jews are pretty well off in Britain. They're white and enjoy many of the privileges of whiteness. It's not 1945 anymore. Islamophobia is much more prominent. Pipe down. there's then a slightly larger donor outside that who recognized that anti-Semitism was something worth fighting against, and it was important and that it was on the rise. But they kept quiet because for them, the overriding purpose of their political lives was to see a Labour government elected, to abolish all of the horrible Tory austerity of the last ten years and get past it. You know, if you're putting it cynically, you'd say sort of, yes, there's a problem, yes, it's a big deal, but we're gonna throw you under the bus anyway because the the cause, the bigger picture is greater. And then there was an even bigger donut around that of people who thought that even that was an objectionable view, but did not have the courage or the wisdom or the time to say what they truly felt and preferred to whisper it to their Jewish friends in private while publicly signaling their assent to it. And then I think there was overlapping with all of those donuts, there was a kind of group of people who felt that there probably was a problem, but that the Jews were exaggerating it and that really they ought to just get a grip and this was our real chance to have a proper left wing government in the UK which of course many many Jews would have liked to see in a different place so i'm afraid when you look at it like that you're actually talking about a lot of people there's no getting away from that and you know as as i consider now you know moving back into the labor party because it's something i'm thinking about now it's difficult it, it's really difficult but at the same time i also look at myself and i think actually how many times in your life have you perceived some kind of injustice and thought about it and then got on with your day and not and not dealt with it. Just something you've seen on the news or something that you've thought about and worried about. And I realize that, and this is one of the great lessons of identity politics, is that it always feels a lot worse to you, the minority, than it does to other people. And, you know, I watch the Black Lives Matter movements and I, I look at the phrase Black Lives Matter and I see the black community are saying is that you don't understand, you've not put yourself in the position of black Americans and in a much, much smaller way, that was what I was feeling. But people are people and human beings are only human. And, you know, if I felt like the institution gave cover and protection to Jews, then I would feel much more emboldened from the inside of that institution, fighting against those who I have no time for.
1: So you said you're thinking of rejoining now. Jamie, what does the party need to do to give you the confidence that that's the right decision? I know Keir Starmer's obviously been quite vocal already, particularly in comparison with the previous leadership. But what do you think needs to change or be visibly demonstrated for you to feel like the party would be a welcome home for you again?
0: Well, I, to be honest, I don't know if it, I don't know if it will be a welcome home, and I genuinely don't know the answer to that. A lot of my friends in the Labour Party, and I still have many, many. When I've said to them, I'm thinking about coming back I've said, that's great, Jamie. And, you know, it's, (laughs) you know, we'd love to have you back. And that's all very nice. But I'm sure there will also be lots of people in the Labour Party who look at people like me and think, well, uh, if they cleave to the view that this issue about the Jews was partly what contributed to Jeremy Corbyn losing the last election, I'm sure there will be many people in the Labour Party who don't view that very favourably. And that's a that's an intimidating prospect. I don't think that the the test, though, is whether it is a welcome home, whether everything's perfect, because I don't think the Labour Party is going to get there. What I want to know, though, is whether I can join an institution where I can legitimately tell myself that my membership of it isn't in any sense a moral compromise, because as a member, I'm able to contribute to improving it. I just didn't feel that was possible under Jeremy Corbyn and his leadership, which perpetually denied and belittled and dismissed the concerns of Jewish people. I don't think Kirstana's leadership is going to do that. That said, it is obviously very early days. And I know that the Jewish community has been really encouraged by his initial stance on these matters, but we'll be looking for a lot more. But frankly, I do trust him. I do actually believe that it is something he wants to deal with. And I hope and believe that the party will eventually fall into line. But I think to be able to do it, it probably needs some Jewish people around, particularly ones who had left, to come back and not take any nonsense. It can't just be swept under the the carpet. So, I mean, from my perspective, there are still people very senior in the party and in the trade union movement who have said and done anti-Semitic things, which if they were against any other racial group would have been career ending. And it is time for them to go. It is time for the Central Party to crack down on local branches that have become rotten, that have hounded out their Jewish MPs, and not just to leave them be now that they have a Gentile MP. There are many really problematic things in the Labour Party. There are still outstanding complaints against lots of Labour members who have said and done anti Semitic things, some of them repeat offenders. And we still don't have a robust process for independently dealing with them. So there's a lot that can be done. And you know, someone like me is going to be keen to help with that sort of thing. But I suppose listeners listening to this may ask, well, you know, if it's all so bad, like why are you doing it? And the answer is that the Labour Party remains a great progressive force in British life. There's no doubt about it. It has always been, and I think will be for some time, the mouthpiece of the liberal left in the UK, which articulates a different way of doing things. And it's something I believe in.
3: And
2: Jamie, before we go on to talking about dogs which I definitely <laughs> want to make sure we have time for. I wondered have any of your friends who maybe didn't behave in a great way previously or didn't stand up and say things have any of them apologized to you since and how do you feel about that? Would you like them to?
0: Yeah plenty of people apologized at the time and what they were doing was they were apologizing for what was going on and what we were going through so I got you know, when I left the Labour Party, I had hundreds of people, because I did it quite publicly on Twitter, you know, I had hundreds of people, good, you know, from, from good friends to mere acquaintances, messaged to say how sorry and sad they were and, how, and you know, that, that, that they were standing in solidarity. My view was that the principal thing to do at that time was to leave the Labour Party. And I honour those MPs who ended their careers, like Luciana Berger, on that principle. Have people written to me to apologize? No. And to be honest, I wouldn't expect them to. It's just because the perspective of most people in the Labour Party is that this is that some, something that was done by other people. People tend only to apologize for the things that they have done wrong. If I was to think of all the times that something had happened that maybe affected a friend of mine, but I wasn't as there for them as I should have done or should have been, I think i'd be doing a lot of apologizing in life for that reason i think i don't hold it against anyone that said you know there's absolutely no doubt that there are people who i spent 10 years with you know fighting alongside knocking doors alongside and who i just didn't hear a word from when i left the party and you know i'll reserve my my thoughts about that that sort of person but for most of them you remain friends it's very very difficult it was very 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 difficult
1: So at that juncture, on to dogs. (laughs) 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 To lighten the mood. I feel like we need to bring you back up a bit, Jamie, now. We need to, like, you know, tell us about dogs. What was the...
0: I've uh, I've talked everyone into a depression.
1: (laughs) Not at all. But do tell us about dogs.
0: Well, this is exciting news. So I didn't have a dog growing up. And one of my best mates had a dog. And I hated it because it always jumped on me and tried to hump my leg and uh, slobbered all over my clothes and it smelled horrible. And I just decided the dogs weren't for me and I just didn't understand everyone's obsession with dogs. And then I met the woman who is now my fiance. It was a lockdown engagement uh, and uh, she had a miniature sausage dog whose name is Mr. Pickle. <laughs> and Mr. Pickle and I have become best friends, and it's completely revolutionized the way I see dogs. Now, when I see them in the park, I want to meet every dog. (laughs) I want to chat to the owner and pretend to be knowledgeable about canine matters. I have bought books about dogs so that I understand what's going on because I'm clueless. What I hadn't realized, and this is quite a superficial point, but what I hadn't realized that people love so much about dogs is how much they like humans. And you know, you can have a terrible day and feel like you're a terrible person, but the dog is just there and he's just so happy to see you and he just wants to lick your face and give you a cuddle. And who wouldn't want that? So now I'm obsessed with him and we, and we do everything together.
2: Just to bring up a theme from the previous question, but in a much more lighthearted way, your friend who had that dog that humped your leg when you were younger, have you told him that mm. you've changed your mind now and you're sorry that you didn't <laughs> like the dog more? <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. I, I <laughs> he, he actually, yeah, he knows about my transformation into a, a dog lover. Um, I think he feels kind of hurt by it. I really didn't like his dog, actually, because I, I do also think there are dogs and then there are dogs and, you know, that, that dog.
1: I totally get that. So on that happy note, <laughs> I'd like to ask you, Jamie, actually, before we wrap up, you know, who would you like to hear about from a time when they changed their mind on an issue? Who would that person be? for you?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Gosh, it's a bit of a cliche, but I think I'd quite like to hear from Obama because I've always felt that he's someone who had all his intellectual ducks in a row. And when you read his books and stuff, it all just seems so seamless, particularly the kind of parallels between his life and his thinking. But I'd love to know what he, a time where he just thought, actually, that was completely wrong and I'm going to change my view on it.
2: So there is one, actually, you're not the first person, but not many people say him, about gay marriage. And he talks about the role of his daughters in persuading him to change his mind in that, actually.
0: I had no idea of that. And that's really interesting.
2: Yeah. And I suspect it's not quite as, you know, you tell stories in a certain way for books and for the public. I suspect it's not quite that straightforward. But yeah, we'll put some links in the show notes that go from this where people can find out more about it.
1: Thank you so much for joining us this evening, Jamie. That was Brilliant. And from a very sort of lofty heights into some quite deep depths and finishing with dogs. So you can't really ask for much more from a podcast episode. I feel like we've done the full, done the full range there. Thank you very much. I hope Thank that was all right.
0: I really appreciate all your great questions.
1: Before Ali, Alex and I digest the interview we've just done, we wanted to bring you a brief word from our partners, Open Democracy. Hello, I'm Mary Fitzgerald, Editor-in-Chief at Open Democracy. We exist to bring you the latest reporting and analysis on social and political issues around the world. We're here to educate citizens, challenge power and encourage democratic debate, just as this podcast does. To find out more about us or to make a contribution to our work, visit opendemocracy.net. So now we've heard the full interview. Was there anything you wanted to reflect on, Ali?
2: Jamie talked really powerfully about his experiences of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It's worth saying that Jeremy Corbyn, the then leader of the Labour Party, issued a statement about the mural Jamie discussed saying, I sincerely regret that I did not look more closely at the image I was commenting on, the contents of which are deeply disturbing and anti-Semitic. I wholeheartedly support its removal. On the issue of the wreath, the Labour Party issued a statement at the time saying, Jeremy did not lay any wreath at the graves of those alleged to have been linked to the Black September organization or the 1972 Munich killings. He, of course, condemns that terrible attack, as he does the 1985 bombing. The new leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, has made extensive efforts to reach out to the Jewish community, saying he is in no doubt that it will take time to rebuild trust between the Jewish community and the Labour Party. Jamie then went on to set out really clearly his view from a position of being one of the UK's lawyers, the barristers that wear the wigs for our American listeners, the differences between the politicization of the judiciary in the US and the UK. He also made the point that barristers have to take cases they vehemently disagree with and advocate from their point of view. It's probably something we can learn from that. How can we bring it across into polarization, something that we maybe haven't considered enough before? What are the norms and the cultures in the legal industry
3: that allow that to happen?
1: And what about you, Alex? What did you take away from it?
3: So I think Jamie was hopeful about the future, but really clear that we have to make decisions or rather our leaders have to make those decisions about the type of future that we want, particularly given the rates of progress in in tech. And you need that. I think you need those, those kinds of decisions, that kind of framework in place So I was also struck by his answer to Ali's question on whether it really was a minority of people in the Labour Party that drove the institutionalised anti-Semitism that Jamie spoke so eloquently about, and the importance of layers of people who may not consider themselves anti-Semitic in allowing it to take root. What about you, though? So me, for me, because I studied politics
1: and philosophy, I think when I read the book, it was a really timely reminder that we have a choice uh, in the structure of the political mm. systems that we live under. And also that tech is shaping our lives and we can't just sleepwalk into a future we don't want or even worse, perhaps don't even understand. Mm. Um and I think, as Jamie said, with climate change, it feels like we shouldn't have to wait until things are crashing down ar- around us to decide, you know, the kind of society uh, that we want to have in the future and, and, and that will shape human experience for, you know, the next 200 years or more.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sleepwalking point, thats you said that much more eloquently than I did. <laughs> that's exactly what I was talking about. I think we need to have those, those, as you said as well, those conversations and debates now rather than accidentally ending up, you know, 50, 100 years down the line without it. Absolutely.
1: Has Jamie inspired you to think about a time you've changed your mind on something and why? At the end of this series, we'll be doing a special listener's edition of the show. Email alison at depolarisationproject.com and tell us about what you've changed your mind on and the best response will get a copy of Jamie's book, Future Politics Whizzed Out in the post. That's all from us today. Thank you very much for listening to
2: this episode of Change My Mind. If you liked what you heard, don't forget we have a full back catalogue of fascinating interviews with leaders. You can find them all by searching Change My Mind in your podcast app. We'll be back next week with a new episode featuring Kajala Dedra, a Managing Director at Change.org. Thank you to Open Democracy for their support of the show, to Caroline Crampton for editing, and to Kevin MacLeod, whose Dreams Become Real is our theme music.